Listen for the word of God in John chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 2. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jew said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say, whoever keeps my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets also died, who, who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, he of whom you say he is our God, though you do not know him but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And so I pray today that God will speak to me and through me and that we'll have a great discourse. In this discourse today, I intend, by the grace of God, to foster a developing awareness of who we are in the cosmic scheme as individuals, as a church, and thereby motivate us to walk courageously in the high calling we have in Christ Jesus. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of God this day. Amen. There was a man uh, at a Minnesota airport, I heard this story a couple years ago. This man was running to the departure gate, hoping he would not miss his flight. He's a big shot in his profession. Going to a, he's going to be a keynote speaker at a large conference. And he gets to the flight gate and he finds a very long line there. And so he rushes up to the uh, attendant at the gate. Ma'am, I cannot afford to miss this flight. Please let me into the front of the line. And the young lady replied very politely, Sir, everyone here in this long line is waiting for the same flight. Kindly join the line. Lady, said the man, do you know who I am? 
At this, the attendant picks up the microphone. Attention, everyone, she said. There's a man here in the front who does not know who he is. Can somebody please help him? This essential amnesia appears to be the general state of humanity. We're unaware of, or rather forgetful, of who we really are because we define ourselves based on the ego, the superficial self, the mask, I call it. This mask represents our particular social and religious alliances, the achievements, triumphs, and failures, biological determinations, physical appearances, and possessions. It represents the rules, the doctrines, policies, and peculiarities that define us as individuals and groups. The two passages uh, we read today address this egoistic identity. The mask. Is this mask what I am? What lies behind this mask that we present to the world each day? Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And really, if ever, does a Christian get to read this statement in its context? That is the context of the conversation itself and the context of the overall message of John and of the early church. In the immediate conversation, Jesus' interlocutors challenge him based on their Abrahamic cultural religious heritage, denying that Jesus himself could be a true son of Abraham because he does not conform. By saying, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus means to say, do not define me by my temporal human existence or by my Abrahamic heritage. I am. I am the very mystery in which I stand, undefined by the historical circumstances of my existence. I am behind all that mask. And Paul declares... It is no longer I who live, the mask. It is Christ who lives in me. And this statement that Paul makes comes out of a similar conversation as that of the conversation between Jesus and his fellow Jews. It's a conversation of a cultural, ethnic, religious pridefulness, or perhaps insecurity, that pits one group against the other demanding conformity to a particular culture or religion symbolized in the case of Galatians by the act of circumcision. Gentiles must identify as Jews in order to count, to be worthy of Messiah's vindication of justice. That's what they thought. But Paul calls his flesh, he calls it works of law, he calls it the ego, the I. And so Paul calls the community to move behind that mask, behind that ego, 
And thus he declares, I, ego, no longer lives. I think that for one to get behind the mask, the ego, as I'm calling it, one needs to examine it carefully. What is this mask I'm talking about? What is this ego? So let's talk about that. The term ego literally means I. It is a Greek first person personal pronoun, ego. We anglicize the pronunciation and we say ego. And that's the very word that Paul uses when he says I, ego, ego, no longer live. The ego is the I, as in self-interest. The ego causes us to see ourselves as separate from others and the things that sustain us. The ego has two interdependent manifestations. First, there's the individual ego. It is the individual self-interest. The second is the collective ego. It is the group interest. Now, a particular group with a common self-interest is maybe called a collective ego. And the individual self is of necessity part of a group or several groups. The individual ego is vitally hooked to the collective ego. So that is why we often identify ourselves as collectives. African-American, black male, black female, LGBTQ, Caucasian, Hispanic, or Seventh-day Adventist. These are groups, collectives. And they may all function as collective egos because, you see, each group has a common identity towards common survival interests. For the collective to survive, they have this common interest. It is for this reason that we have lobbies for each is uh, lobbying for the interests of its group. Now, when the major preoccupation is the survival of the group as separate and apart from others, regardless of the interests of others, the group becomes a collective ego. There are two main markers of the collective ego. There's a sense of superiority. And there's a sense of victimhood. These are two foundational markers of a collective ego. The collective ego is chiefly defined by its self-interest towards survival of the group. So the actions of the collective ego reflect the norms and boundaries that it prescribes and marks off against others. The collective ego is the most powerful and volatile manifestation of the ego. It can wield absolute power over the individual to the extent that the individual ego cannot grasp the fact that the collective ego cannot really survive without it. A very significant example of the collective ego is the faith community. And the faith community as a collective ego can be even more brutal than others, precisely because it sets itself apart from others as superior in its understanding of God. Generally, this aura of superiority is a matter of survival. That is why those who belong to such groups may come under severe scrutiny on how they conform to the norms, the dogmas, the doctrines, and lifestyle of the group. 
and the average member of the group conforms in the interest of his or, his or her own survival. They conform because of fear of losing their livelihood, for fear of being ostracized or stigmatized or even ridiculed. As such, the collective ego tends to co-opt or even coerce the individual conscience. Conform or resign. The collective e ego can hijack the individual consciousness because that person has hooked up their own self-interest and self-identity to it. Let me say this carefully. A faith community is not of necessity a collective ego. But when a faith community loses its spiritual direction to nurture individuals towards unity with God, when its focus is on the survival or is on the individual's conformity to the group, rather than the individual's relationship with God, let me say that again. When its focus is on the individual's conformity to the group, rather than the individual's relationship with God, when its identity becomes narcissistic, when its focus is on its own survival, it becomes a collective ego and maybe at times brutal and insane. As such, countless souls have encountered deep existential crisis. And this crisis manifests itself in overt and covert ways. It manifests itself in all kinds of egoistic behaviors, destructive addictions, violence against self and others. It manifests itself in ideological, cultural, political, and religious alliances that often resemble the cultism and gangsterism, which are themselves deep manifestations of identity crisis and survival anxiety. We may observe this kind of identity crisis in our own faith community and in the wider evangelical culture, which I will not go into here, but will recommend to you page 15 to 25, pages 15 to 25 of A House on Fire. Also recommend two books, one by Michael Campbell, um, a director of uh, archives, statistics and research at the NAD. Um, the first one is, uh, I recommend this one by Michael Campbell, 1919, The Untold Story of Adventism's Struggle with Fundamentalism, published 2019. The other one addresses the broader evangelical culture. It's called The Kingdom, Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicalism in an Age of Extremism just um, published this year. Here, um, these describe the faith community as it becomes so anxious over its own survival that it loses its way and tend to lose its way. These collective ego alliances, especially the religious alliance, often takes the place of God. These alliances often chain the individual to a network of fear and guilt and vanity and anxiety, apart from which the individual has no identity. Now let me tell you a story of one woman who liberated herself from the collective ego. There are two major actors in this story. 
Elizabeth Eckford and Hazel Bryan. Elizabeth Eckford was one of nine high-achieving black kids, the first students chosen to begin racial integration in schools in the segregated South. This was happening in 1957 at Little Rock Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. The Little Rock Nine is what they call the nine students. On the first day of school, an angry mob came out to intimidate these students and prevent them from going into the school. By happenstance, on the first day of school, Elizabeth was the only one of the nine black students that showed up to face the angry mob. Her parents did not get the memo that we're not going out today. They screamed and shouted obscenities. They called for her lynching as this girl clutched her folder uh, and, uh, and walked towards the school. The God-fearing governor of Arkansas himself, God-fearing for sure, ordered security forces to stop her at the school door. And she was chased away by the mob. The nine children eventually got into school that year, but only after the U.S. president himself, President Eisenhower, intervened and sent the 101st Airborne to ex escort these nine kids to school. And for an entire year in the school, fellow students punched, spat on, and threw eggs on Elizabeth. But Elizabeth, as I said, is not the only star of that infamous scene captured by the American history books. Hazel Bryan was the other star. The anger on Hazel Bryan's face as she screamed at Elizabeth to go back to Africa has gone down in history as a symbol of racial antipathy in America. And in fact, the most iconic symbol of the civil rights movement. But good news, let me say that quickly. Good news. In later life, Hazel came into consciousness. She liberated herself from the collective ego. She apologized to Elizabeth, and they became lifelong friends. In this case, we see how it is easy for one to lose one's true self in the mob of the collective ego, the group, the culture, the community, the church, God forbid. This was Hazel's plight. She was part of a mob with her own parents and other upstanding Christian members and leaders of the community. Her moral judgment was lost in the mob. But when she stepped away from the mob, figuratively speaking, she saw her own self clearly. So this is what I learned here. Regardless of one's cultural or religious norms and experiences, every person has the power of real self-determination. How do I live from my innermost self? How do I claim agency over who I am? How do I claim spiritual agency? Now, all this, Black, female, 
Jamaican, mother, wife, teacher, heterosexual, called Olive, good Adventist, depends on where you stand. <laughs> Whatever. All this is temporal and temporary. And beautiful, yes. But all this to me is a mask to be celebrated, yes. As much as I celebrate your mask. It is how I'm experiencing the world. But who am I really? That's the question. It is so easy for me to attach myself to this mask as though it is all that I am. And I think that instinctively we all know that the mask is temporary. Hence the perpetual anxiety over survival and the violence that accompanies all of that. Jesus addresses this attachment to temporality in the conversation that we just read here, the conversation with his ethnic tribal contemporaries. That's the conversation he's having there. John 8, 58, Jesus makes this most powerful statement of identity that language can express, just two words, I am. Before Abraham came, I am. Now it's important to read this statement as part of the big picture of the early church Christology. Because without the big picture, we miss the profound meaning of the statement. In John, Jesus' statement, I am, is not only a divine proclamation, it is also human identity. But more than this, I am is not about the I in isolation. I am is the authentic I, inseparable from being itself. I, first person personal pronoun, am from the verb to be. I am undefined, unqualified. This is cosmic identity. It exceeds individual and group identity. It is only when I take on this true identity that I can love my neighbor. From then, I can look beyond that mask and look beyond the mask of another. I can look beyond your mask and see my own self there. One life. God is one. I am. Now let's keep with that statement, I am. If we read the statement, I am, in the immediate context, we see Jesus in conversation with his own people. They are obsessed about their ethnic identities and religious tradition as children of Abraham. And Jesus' answer to them is this. My identity does not begin and end with my Abrahamic heritage or my religion or my culture. That is not my true identity because it is temporal. It is flesh, as Paul says. It is the eye, the mask. Before Abram was, I am. Let us examine this statement a little more closely. Now in English, the, the words was and am have something in common, right? From the verb to be, huh? That's what they have in common. It's just different tense. But 
The same thing is not happening here in the original Greek version. Before Abraham was, I am. That's not what is happening. What the English versions of the text translate as was, or was born, in some translation, referring to Abraham, is not from the verb to be, or from the verb to give birth. Rather, the actual Greek word is from the word ginomai. It refers to a historical occurrence, a happening or an event. It literally reads, before Abraham happened or came, I am. It is not referring here about, uh, it is not referring here to Abraham's personal existence per se. That's not what it's referring to. Rather, it is talking about the Abrahamic tradition. So the conversation was to steer them away from religious, cultural tribalism and point them to the immediacy and totality and oneness of being. I am. But they didn't get it, hence what appears to be baby question in verse 57 and the violence against Jesus in verse 59. Well, let me press this further in its broader context, in the writings attributed to John. In the writings attributed to John, that is the Gospel of John, the epistles of the same name, John says that the Logos, the Word, which is the life of God, manifests itself in Jesus of Nazareth, John 1, verse 14. So that when one sees Jesus, one sees God, John 14, 9. But John goes on to say that the Logos, the Word, also seeks to manifest itself in humanity, in us. So that when one sees me, one ought to see God. Where does John say this? Twice John makes this curious statement. No one has ever seen God. And he says that first in John 1.18. And then he goes on to say, it is the only son who is close to God's heart that has made God known. Then he makes the very same statement again, this time in the epistle. 1 John 4 verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. What is John trying to say here? This is to say that when we love, when we embrace this cosmic identity, we become one with God and with everything that all God's creatures. So that when one sees me, really me, behind the mask, one ought to see God. When one sees you, really you, behind the mask, one ought to see God. Don't stone me, friends. I'm just reading straight from John. In 1 John 4, verse 7, he says, The one who loves is begotten, is born of God. Who else does John say is born of God? Huh? Jesus. The one who loves has embraced the only authentic, life-affirming identity. So when you look at me, do not see my gender. Do not see the color of my skin. Do not see my ethnic hairstyle, my doctoral title, or how good or bad an Adventist I am, or any of those superficial stuff. All this is temporal and temporary. 
I am. See there your own being. And if you can declare I am, what does that really mean? I want you to think that through when you have some time. But let me press a little further in the context of the gospel in general, the gospel preached by the early church. Look at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke. In Luke, it shows that Jesus is the son of Joseph. So it was thought. Jesus is son of Joseph, so it was thought. Now, if he had just said he was the son of Mary, you wouldn't need that disclaimer, right? Jesus is the son of Joseph, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Each time I ask my students to read the genealogy and ask, who is Jesus' ancestor? They say, Adam. I said, no, it didn't say Adam. It said, Adam, son of God. Jesus is son of God as a son of humanity. You are a son of Eve, daughter of God. Luke uses the genealogy to make the case that all humanity is coming from one source, one line that finds root in God. So in John's philosophy, Jesus comes to demonstrate what it means to be human. To reinforce the Genesis account of creation, we are by nature divine, made in divine image, daughters and sons of God. So that the Jesus story is not just the story of God, it is also the story of humanity, two sides of the same coin. Let me continue to press the argument in the context of the overall theology of the Bible without all the cultural fluff that surrounds it. Moses is to go down into Egypt to pull off one of the boldest rescue missions in history. And he wants to know the name of the God who is sending him, Exodus 3. What is his name, Moses asks. Does Moses receive a name? I am. This is the thing. Moses' question, what is his name, is loaded with the sentiment of a culture filled with hundreds of tribal gods. Just like we have in America today. Hundreds of tribal gods. The answer, I am, seems to me to be a gentle but firm rebuke. Moses, you stand in the presence of infinite being on identified, unqualified, unquantified. I am. This is an invitation to Moses to detach from the tribal identity and personality, to move beyond the mask and become fully aware of being present and all-encompassing. This is precisely Jesus' point in John 8. It is by embracing the power of the very life in which Moses himself stands, I am, that he will pull off this bold act of liberation from slavery. I am is freedom. Freedom from the mask, I am, is the only 
is not only divine declaration. I am is not only divine declaration. It is also human identity. But to say I am is not to say I am God. Rather, it is to say that I'm part of something infinitely greater than myself or my church or my race or my country. And the more I become conscious of who I am, the more the ego shrinks and I lose attachment to the mask. And every moment becomes a divine calling upon my life. And I approach every task and every relationship with faithfulness and integrity, with justice and love. And the mask merely becomes the vehicle, not the thing that I am. And so let me say to everyone in my hearing, regardless of what you think about yourself or what anyone thinks about you, whoever you are, whatever your station in life, Wherever you've been in this life, you're a holy one. You're not a piece of meat to be judged by your skin shade, to be judged by the possession of particular body parts or by the sizes and shapes thereof, or by the value that a financial institution places on you. No. You're a holy one. Your word of God manifests, waiting to manifest. God spoke and you came into being. Let us make humanity in our own image. What comes from the hands of God is holy. You cannot make yourself holy. You are holy. Live as though you are holy. Little Rock and the countless other similar stories in American history demonstrate human forgetfulness of its identity. Human forgetfulness of its divinity. We have allowed culture, tradition, and ideology in the name of religion and the name of God to dumb down our consciousness so that we separate children from their parents at the borders, locking, up in, locking them up in cages as though we ourselves are frightened, preying upon the poor and the destitute for security, silencing women called by God in the name of unity, because we have forgotten who we are. The root of evil in this world is the direct result of the human anxiety over its survival. One person or one group believes that its survival depends on the suppression of another. Such is the case and such is the, the cause of greed and envy and boastfulness and racism and sexism and religious sectarianism. As long as humanity is primarily consumed with survival, the law of the jungle will prevail. The Little Rock Nine, the carnage in Ukraine, in Gaza, Israel, the lawless killing of black people by law enforcement personnel, the violence against women, whether at home, at the workplace, or in the religious institutions that tell them they cannot represent God. It is all about the ego, the mask. It is a mask that we project to scare each other into subjection because we are driven by fear, survival anxiety. 
humanity created in the image of God ought not to be anxious over its survival. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor sow nor gather into barns. Are you not of much more value than they? Do not worry about your survival, Jesus says. But seek first the kingdom of God and what? Actually, that word means justice. That's what the word means. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. In everything, do to others and as you would have them do to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's seeking first the kingdom of God and his justice. So as a community of faith, we must transcend the ego. We should not perpetuate a culture of survival. Our church has been too obsessed with its survival to the extent that it has joined forces with American fundamentalism and all the racism and sexism that comes with it. As such, it has even laid its bed at some point with the... As such, it has even laid in bed at some point in its history with the Klukov clan. You can read about that in an article, article in the April 26, 2022 issue of Spectrum magazine titled Adventism, Fundamentalism, and the Second Wave of the Ku Klux Klan. Survival anxiety. Our church has engaged, our church has ended, our church, let me say that again, our church ended segregation in its K-12 schools. And what motivated the ending of that segregation? It was not moral conviction, but financial expediency. Read about that in Calvin Rock's book, Protest and Progress, page 88. Do we know who we really are as a community called by God to bring light to the world? If we do, let us stand fearlessly against every semblance of violence and oppression within and outside. Let us ceaselessly avoid the narcissistic survival mode. Humanity came into this world with a higher calling than survival. Survival is basic animal instinct. Survival is a law of the jungle. Dog eat dog, as we say in Jamaica. We have come into this world to discover our true identity, to nurture back in each other the divine image, to bring healing and wholeness to a creation groaning to be free. I must embark upon that journey of liberation. Because like Moses and like Jesus, I've come to know I am. I am on a journey towards something infinitely better than myself. Pure mystery of the cosmos deep within. I cannot explain it. You cannot enforce it. In my dream, I wander the hills and the deep blue sea. Behold creation, wonder, and majesty. I awaken. And behold, 
The wonder and the mystery lies right here inside of me. Boundless life, pure magic, beyond logic, beyond knowledge, beyond need to systemize and lock down and creed. I am. All humanity agrees. I am. Beyond the mask. Free. So, live your best life now, y'all. Stay with me in this Seventh-day Adventist community. Join us in it. And let us make it the agent of liberation that it is called to be. May God bless you. Amen.